0: Well, good morning see. My name is Pastor Steve, and it is a, a, a joy to be here with you on this Easter Sunday morning. One of the things that I have loved about life in Ethiopia is that we get to celebrate a lot of things twice. We get to celebrate Easter twice here. We get to celebrate Christmas twice here. We even get to celebrate New Year's twice here, and uh, I enjoy celebration Someone had told me that today is uh, one of the lower attended Sundays of the year, that many of uh, the Ethiopian community uh, spend time with family today. And that's a beautiful thing. There's something rich about being able to gather with family and spend time there. So uh, we know that that's where a lot of our body is today, spending time with family. In the United States, where I uh, come from, Easter is actually the largest attended Sunday of the year they told me here in Easter in Ethiopia it's the opposite so uh, but we're good we're glad to get to celebrate Easter a second time and truly every Sunday is a mini Easter that's why we worship on Sundays we worship on Sundays because we worship a risen Savior and as we gather every Sunday we want to be minded that indeed he has risen I heard a story of a little boy who was at an art gallery, and he had walked up to a picture of Jesus on the cross. And as he was looking, staring at this picture of Jesus on the cross, this older saint, this older Christian man sees him, and he was curious watching that young man. So he walked up to him and said, Young man, tell me what you're looking at. And the boy said, well, sir, I'm looking at a picture of my Lord and Savior Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and for everyone's sins. Well, the old man, he walked away quite satisfied with the young man's answer and impressed by this young man. But the young man came running up to this older man and pulled on his coat and said, sir, I forgot to tell you one part. I forgot to tell you the best part. He's not dead, He is risen. He rose three days after. And we too will rise if we trust Him. The resurrection. We talked about it a few weeks ago on International Sunday and we talked on International Easter. And we talked about how the resurrection is so important, how all Scripture points to it, it's essential. Oftentimes we think, well, the cross was essential because it paid the price for my sin. Was the resurrection essential? Without the resurrection, there's no victory over sin. Well, today what I want to do is look at a passage in the book of Corinthians, First Corinthians. Paul is writing to his most troubled church. The church in Corinthians had all sorts of issues, and Paul has to write several corrective letters to them. We have two of them in our Bible, but we know Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. Well, in 1 Corinthians, he's working with his church, talking about a lot of things they need to straighten up, but when he comes to chapter 15, in one of the longest chapters of the book, He turns to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the most glorious passages on understanding the resurrection in all of Scripture, and that's where we're going to look today. It's a long chapter, but we're only going to look at the first 11 verses, so if you would please stand with me. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The words will be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, I always encourage you to look on... Look in the word of God that you have in your hand. Hear the word of our Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at, the same, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James Then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and with the grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the passage that we look at today is a part of one of the earliest dated Christian hymns. In fact, this hymn is dated to a mere few months after the, resu- after the resurrection. It's dated back as early... as is 3637 BC shortly after Jesus rose and this book 1st Corinthians it's written 20 years after the resurrection I say that because Paul mentions that those who saw the resurrection are still alive it's only been 20 years there's a few that have died but most are there also this book is written 40 years before the final book of the New Testament which is the book of Revelation So it's a strategically placed book, and Paul here, he starts off, he says, I would remind you, brothers. Paul is giving the church a reminder, and that's really what we want to do today. I want to give a reminder of our faith, a reminder of the Gospels, what Paul says, the Gospel that was preached to you. It's important to be reminded of the Gospel it's actually something that we should wake up every day. As we wake up in the day, we can wake up and say, Lord, praise you that as I wake up, my hope is not in the circumstances of this day. My hope is in you, my security is in you. And we get to celebrate that. And Paul wants the church to be reminded here of the reasonableness of their faith. So what Paul's going to do here, he's going to act like a defense attorney, defending the resurrection. In theological circles, that's called apologetics. Apologetics means it's not to apologize for your faith. It's the study of Scripture and of the areas of our faith and of God to say, is this reasonable? Is this reliable? Can we trust what God has said in his word? Today, we're going to look. Paul's going to give an apologetic for the resurrection. So, we're going to look briefly. We're not going to cover all areas of apologetics, and we're certainly not going to thoroughly cover all areas of apologetics for the resurrection. We're going to look at what Paul speaks to. If you want to read more on a defense of the faith, that yes, what we believe, it can stand, it is trustworthy. I would recommend several books to you. I'm happy if you email me to give you some of those, but men like Norman Geisler, Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, all these have written very good books saying what we believe, it stands. And Paul here, he's saying, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now that's a beautiful word. As a church, that's our foundation. Everything we do as a church is built upon the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to remind them of that. That's why we gather each Sunday. We gather to proclaim the Word, the Word of God, and how do we as gospel people? People who have been transformed by the gospel. How do we respond? And we know that there's those who gather with us, who are unredeemed, is what Scripture would call, who have not trusted the gospel. And we're glad that you're here, if that's you. We pray that the Lord will convict you and reveal to you the truth of his word. We pray that God will do his work. So here he says in verse 2 that the gospel is what you stand in, but he says it's also by that by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word preached to you. You see, the gospel has the power to save us. That's the glorious good news. It reconciles us back to God. But it also, we are being saved by the gospel. Now, does that mean you're going to lose your salvation? No, it's not speaking of that. It speaks of those who have truly trusted Christ. What's going to bear out in their life is that they are saved. The gospel continues to save us. The gospel gives us power. It saves us from the power of sin in our life. The gospel saves us and uh, removes sin, sets us free from sin. The gospel gives us power for victorious living. So as a Christian, to live defeated, that's to live outside of your new nature. No, we live victorious in Christ. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. And he says, the gospel that was preached to you unless you believe in vain. Do you know if there's a type of belief that is in vain? Scripture speaks of it that someone can have a form of belief, but it's not a belief unto salvation. Now that may sound a little strange. But Scripture speaks even the demons believe. Maybe we certainly wouldn't say that they're saved or redeemed. No, there's those who can believe the facts of the gospel, but God has not redeemed them. They have not been born again. They're not converted. They're not a new creation. No, when we believe the gospel, when we trust in it, we are a new creation and we're different. Our life's transformed. And for the Christian, there will be fruitfulness that flows from their life. For the person who claims Christ but shows little to no evidence of being transformed by the gospel, Scripture gives little assurance. In fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it speaks of those who will enter into the presence of God and will come into His holy presence in the kingdom of God and what often is called heaven, but it says they do so with flames on their pants, meaning that they do so with just a limited amount of belief And God is the one who saved them and redeemed them. Now, there's not a certain amount of belief we have to have to be saved. It's just as we believe and we trust, we are transformed and we're made new. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. Unless you believe in vain, I pray that none of us would believe merely in the intellectual information of the gospel, but that it would come down and transform us. Now, today, Paul is addressing some of the intellectual aspects because here's what I want to remind us of today. What you believe, if you believe the gospel, it is reasonable. It's rational. It's it's not crazy belief. Sometimes we wonder that. Is is what I believe, is it crazy? Does it make sense? No, the gospel can stand. We can can evaluate it. And here, in verse 3, he says, For what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I received. Paul keeps the good news. Of Jesus Christ primary as a church may we never wander from what is primary there's a lot of important things that we see in Scripture but primary is the gospel it's of first importance I'm sometimes surprised by those who have been in church many years who've been among the fellowship of the saints and if you were to say to them what is the gospel can you tell me that And sometimes they struggle to articulate it. Now, I'm not trying to be hard on anyone, but I believe as a Christian, we ought to be able to explain the good news of the gospel. We ought to be able to say, here's what's happened. Here's what Christ did. And Paul here, in verses 3 and 4, explains the gospel in simple, yet accurate and precise terms. So if you hear and you struggle, if you're like, when someone asks me what the gospel is, I just sort of always forget. Memorize. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. It's a great explanation of the gospel. Listen to what he says. Here's what Paul received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Simple, beautiful, glorious. Christ died for for our sin. Our sin is what put him on the cross. He went to the cross to be a substitute. Our sin deserved death. He took the death in our place. And here Paul starts off, every word of this man is sought to refute. Paul says when he received that Christ, that Christ died. Now some will debate, did Jesus really claim to be the Messiah? i think that's pretty clear jesus said in john 14 6 he is the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through him jesus disciples he asked them in matthew 16 who do you say i am and i'll tell you that's the most important question you'll ever have to answer in this life who do you say jesus is and peter the leader of the disciples He speaks up on their behalf and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus clearly claimed to be the Christ, but then people will say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Well, when you understand the culture and you see how Jesus spoke, he claimed to be God day after day after day. Phrases like the Son of Man, Son of God, those are claiming to be divinity. He gets even more clear in John uh, eight fifty eight when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And that I am statement, he's not just saying I've always existed, which is true. That I am statement is the name of God, which no Jewish person would speak. No, he clearly claimed to be God. In John 15, I mean, in John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. And his enemies responded to that in John 10, They say that he claims to be God. His enemies, that was their accusation. You're claiming to be God, and Jesus didn't deny it. No, Jesus over and over again, he claims to be God. The Messiah wasn't coming as a mere conquering king. That's what some wanted him to be, a conquering king to take out the Romans. He came as something far greater, God Himself coming to rescue sinful humanity from their sins. Now, some would say those are all Scripture. Do we have any evidence that Jesus claimed to be God outside of Scripture? Well, there's several, but I'm just going to give you one. This is from a man named Pliny the Younger. He was trained by his uncle, known as Pliny the Elder. And he was friends with the emperor of Rome named Trajan. And in in 111 AD, he and Trajan exchanged notes, which we have. I want you to hear the notes they exchanged. Now, Trajan had been persecuting Christians ruthlessly. He wanted to stamp out Christianity. And here's what he said. I've asked them, this is Trajan speaking, the emperor, if they are Christians... And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second time and a third time, warning them of the punishment that is awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away and executed. He goes on to say this. They also declare that the sum total of their guilt or error is amounted to no more than this. They meet regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant Verses alternately among themselves, and they chant verses in honor of Christ as if to God. They also bind themselves in an oath, not for any criminal purposes, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. You can already see in the early church how Christ had transformed their values, their morals, But you also can see in the early church that they believed Jesus was God. They didn't just say he was Messiah, he was a man. No, he was God incarnate. In fact, Trajan goes on to say that he tortured some of the women because he believed you wouldn't die just to say this man was God, would you? And he tortured these women to see if they would recant. And yet they never did. Now, Christians, there's been many martyrs that have stood on the fact that Jesus is God. Now, the Old Testament, it predicts his death over and over again in types and pictures of sacrificial lambs. I talked about that uh, on the International Easter Holy Day. But one of the most clearest places we see Jesus talked about, the becoming Messiah, is in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.5, hear this. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed Jesus was crushed for our sins he died for our sins claiming to be God and that's what it says here back in 1st uh, Corinthians it says that Christ died now people live in de- debate Did Jesus actually die? Is it true that he died? Maybe he just, some would say maybe he just swooned. By swoon, what they mean is he passed out. He was beaten up pretty good. He appeared to be dead and they put him in the tomb. But he wasn't really dead. No, he was still alive. He never died. Well, I think it takes a lot of faith to believe that Jesus never actually died. The eyewitnesses that saw him die certainly believe he died. The disciples thought he was dead. Roman professional executioners, they believed he was dead. And if they got it wrong, if you were an executioner and you failed failed to execute the person you were assigned to kill, they would kill you in that person's place. So no Roman executioner is going to get this wrong. Jesus had been up all night. He went through six trials. Six trials the night of his death. They took him to go visit Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. He bounced all around the Sanhedrin. These six trials that were all breaking these Jewish laws. He was up all night. And then He was beaten, 39 lashes, beaten to the point of near death, physically beaten. And Pilate thought, maybe the people will think that us beating Jesus is enough and they won't call for his death, but they did. And Jesus was put on a cross. They say, and there's no recorded incidences in Roman history of anyone ever surviving Roman crucifixion. They all died. You see, the Roman guards, you died by suffocation as you hung on the cross. Your legs could no longer support you, and you would die of suffocation. But if they wanted to speed it up, in an act of mercy, they would come and break your legs, and you would suffocate quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break a bone in his body, as was predicted in the Old Testament. He was already dead. He had already breathed breathed his last. Instead, they put a spear into his side, and out came water and blood. Jesus was declared dead by two Roman coroners. And again, if the Roman coroners get it wrong, they're going to be executed. He would have had to spend three days in a tomb without food or water, somehow roll away a two-ton stone and walk out, walk several miles, and fear before his followers and say, I'm victorious, having been beaten and bloodied. No, the idea that Jesus didn't really die makes no sense. In fact, atheist uh, uh, Gerd Lundman says this, Historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. People don't debate, did Jesus die? Jesus lived and he died. He was actually dead. And we see that throughout Scripture. It's the next things that they really debate. It says that he was buried and that he raised. These two things. He was buried and he raised. Now, some will say, why couldn't they find the body? Well, maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They just got the address wrong. They, they went to the wrong place. But Jesus was in a very public tomb. He was in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the ruling Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin who put Jesus on the cross, Joseph was a part of him. But he didn't vote in favor of Jesus dying. He took Jesus' body and put it in his own tomb. A public place. A place that everybody would have known well. Tomb of a, of a wealthy person. It wasn't tomb of a poor person. Some will say, well, maybe they stole the body. The disciples just came and took the body, hid it, and said he had risen. Well, do you realize there was a Roman guard at the tomb? That would have been 12 to 16 men guarding the tomb in shifts. If one of those men fell asleep on their guard, they killed all the whole group. That group was responsible for guarding this tomb. And they would have put leather straps over the tomb with a clay insignia, a a piece of clay with a Roman insignia on it. If that was broken, then they knew that someone had gotten in. To think that these 12 disciples, who were fearful, who were so fearful that when a little girl asked Peter, you sound like one of them, Peter ran and hid. He denied it. To think that these 12 men could go overtake a Roman guard and steal the body was nearly inconceivable. A trained group of Roman guards, they go and overtake it, that's hard to believe. You see, even Jesus' opponents admit the tomb was empty. The question isn't, was the tomb empty? They're asking, what happened to the body? And I'll tell you, if the body of Jesus Christ had been found they would have marched it up and down the streets of Jerusalem for everybody to see. They would have said, this is a lie. This is made up. No, these men were willing to die. And it says he was buried and he raised. He raised. That's a miracle. That's the biggest miracle that Jesus ever performed. And just a few weeks before he died, he raised another man named Lazarus from the dead. Jesus Perform many miracles, and there was never once a question of are Jesus' miracles legit? Nobody in Scripture goes, are the miracles real? Here's what they debate. What's the source? How does Jesus do what he does? What's the source of the miracles? And the best they could come up with is he does it by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons that he does it by evil, that he does it by the power of the enemy, Satan. Now, why did Jesus do miracles? I believe there's two reasons that Jesus did miracles. One is out of compassion. He did miracles out of compassion. But I don't believe that's the number one reason he did miracles. The primary reason he did miracles was to show that he has power over sin. Do you remember in Luke And in Mark's gospel, a group of men bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. They rip open the roof, and they lower this man down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus sees the paralyzed man, his words are this, Your sins are forgiven. At that, the religious leaders hear that, and they're thinking to themselves, No one can forgive sins but God alone. Right there, they should have put the connection. If this guy can forgive sins, he must be God. But here's the thing. Any of us can say your sins are forgiven. I can walk up to you right now and say your sins are forgiven. You have no proof if what I said is true. You don't know. But here's what Jesus does. He says to show... That the Son of Man has authority on earth as in heaven, he says, Rise and walk to this man. Why couldn't the man walk? Because sin exists in this world. Why does all disease exist? It's a result of sin. We're wearing masks today because there's a disease out there called COVID, and we want to love our neighbor and not spread it, but it's a reminder this world is broken. This world is fallen. It's not the way that God intended it to be way back in the garden. And Jesus is saying, if I can forgive your sin, I can, forget, I can roll back the consequence of sin. Jesus has authority over sin. He showed it throughout his ministry. So Jesus' greatest miracle is rising from the dead. There's no miracle that Jesus ever did that was for himself. No, even this last miracle where he rose from the dead, it wasn't about him raising from the dead, it was about you and I raising from the dead, so that death can't defeat us. Death can't be victorious. So when we see his resurrection, we go, "We too, who have believed we will rise from the dead." And here he says that it was all in accordance with scriptures. Then the last thing Peter does is give eyewitnesses. I mean, Paul does is give eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses are important. In any court of law, you have a certain number of eyewitnesses to, give, to, to validate something. And it says he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Mentions him strategically. Peter denied Christ. He went running at the sound of a little girl saying you're one of them. Makes us feel a lot better when we sometimes get a little afraid to stand up for our faith. Even Peter, he was afraid. And it says, then the 12. I love that it mentions the 12. To me, probably the most convincing apologetic in my heart and mind and life is these 12 disciples. You see, of these 12 disciples, 11 of them would die for the gospel. Six of them by crucifixion. The only one who didn't die by, uh, for the gospel was a man named John, who God allowed to live so that he could write the book of Revelation. But he was put in a pot of boiling oil, and they tried to kill him. He just survived. No, these men were tortured for their faith. And it's certainly not unheard of for someone to die for what they believe. You've probably seen in the news at times, suicide bombers... People who believe something so firmly that they will go and kill themselves uh, for that belief. People will die for what they believe. But there's a big difference between dying for what you believe and dying for what you know. The disciples had touched Jesus. They had seen his scars in his hands. They had seen the scar in his side. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they believe they saw and touched. You see, the disciples, they knew without a shadow of doubt if Jesus really rose or not. You and I, we believe by faith. The disciples, they believed by sight. They had seen him. They had touched him. And no one will die for what they know is a lie. To think that all 12 of the disciples, 11 of them dying, one of them being tortured. As they're about to die for something they knew was a lie, they would say, I'm not dying for it. All 11 of them died. Not for what they believed. They died for what they believed they saw and touched and experienced. Very different These witnesses are important. He goes on to then say in verse 6, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. Some have tried to say, well, maybe the disciples hallucinated and thought that they were just seeing Jesus. They wanted to see it so bad, they, they all had a mass hallucination. It takes more faith to believe that 500 people all hallucinated at once than it does to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It takes more faith to believe that. These guys all went to Philistine. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, and Paul says most of them are alive right now. Remember, this is just 20 years after the resurrection. He's writing to this church in Corinth, and he's saying, Hey, you can go find these guys. Wouldn't that be amazing to walk out and go find someone who, did you see the risen Jesus? I saw him. I talked to him, I saw the wounds. He was real. He was victorious over death. That's what these 500 saw. It says then he appeared to James. Why does it mention James? Well, this James is the brother of Jesus. And do you remember Jesus' brother did not believe? James did not believe until Jesus rose that he was the Messiah. When he saw his brother risen from the dead, he believed. And at that point, James not only believed, he became the leader of the church in in Jerusalem, the early church. And then finally, Paul says himself, Paul was an enemy of the gospel. Paul sought to kill Christians. And yet when he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was transformed. No, an enemy of God is a testimony to the truthfulness of this. You see, our faith, our faith can stand. Our faith is reasonable, it's rational. Listen, listen to a few more examples. Simon Greenleaf, he's known for writing much of the United States judicial system's current code. He was a professor at Harvard, which is the most prestigious law school, or one of the most prestigious in the United States. He said this, All that Christianity asks of men is that they would be consistent with themselves and that they would treat the evidence as the, as the evidence of other things would be treated and that they would try and judge the actors and witnesses they do other tribunals. He's just saying be fair with it. Just look at the evidence. Listen to what Thomas Arnold said. He was the chair of modern history at Oxford University in England. He wrote a three-volume work on the history of Rome. Here's what he says. The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and has often been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands... And tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge, summoning up the most important cause. I myself have done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I've been used this for many years to study the histories of other times and examine and weigh the evidence of those of ancient worlds. And I know of no one fact of history of mankind which has proved better and fuller than the evidence of every sort of understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign that God has given his Christ and that he died and rose again from the dead. Again, lots of scholars have weighed the evidence. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He weighed the evidence. And he trusted Christ. Lee Strobel, he was a journalist. He took his journalistic nature and applied it to the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. He became a Christian. Frank Morris, his law students challenged him, just weigh it according to your law evidence. And he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone. Church. My goal is not to convince you of the thoroughly reliable, the thorough reliableness of the, God, of the resurrection. I don't think we can be convinced of it without a shadow of a doubt. I think the evidence is reasonable. I think it's logical. But I think God always wants us to take a step of faith. He will never give quite so much proof that it doesn't require you stepping out and going, It's reasonable, it makes sense, it's logical, there's enough evidence, but I've still got to step out by faith and trust it. It requires our faith. So our faith is, it can stand the inquiries of man. And church, I want you to be encouraged. As Paul said in this verse, he says he wants to remind I want to remind you, church, as you go out here in the world, there's going to be those who will look and say, you believe what? That's really what you believe? That can't be accurate. You place your hope in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in this ancient book 2,000 years ago that this happened. Our faith can stand the criticisms. So again, if you wrestle with this, I would encourage you to look at other sources. There's many on this. And listen to how Paul ends in verse 11. He says, Whether then it was I or they, we preach and so you believe. You and I, Christians, we're here because someone passed on this message to us. Someone has shared it with us, going all the way back to these faithful 500 These faithful 12, James, Paul, Peter, that's our spiritual heritage. That's where we trace our lineage back to. And, church, I want to encourage you. We get the great joy of passing on our faith to the next generation, we get the great joy of passing on our faith to those who've never heard. It's not our job to necessarily convince anyone of the truth of the gospel. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, to live it out, and allow God to do the work of opening the blind person's eyes to the truthfulness of the gospel. The gospel's good. It does its work. And if you're here today and you believe the gospel with all your heart, mind, and soul, I pray that you're encouraged. Our faith is reasonable. We can stand on it. If you're here today and maybe you believe but your life's a little up and down. Sometimes it's easier to do what you want to do. I pray that you would know there's nothing better than living for the good news of Christ. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I don't think any argument I can make would convince you, but I believe God himself can open the eyes of those who don't see. And I pray if you're here today and you don't know him, that he would open your eyes. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are gracious. You save lost sinners such as myself and such as the men and women in this room. And you save us for your glory and our good. And you do it because your Son, who is God himself, went to the cross and died in our place, for our sin, yet death couldn't hold him down. And Lord, we see that for the Christian, death has no sting. There's no fear in death. We mourn and we grieve when those die. Maybe we don't long for death, but Lord, we don't fear it because death, we will rise victorious in Christ. We will live forever. Our eternity's already begun, we will never die and we will spend eternity with you. So Lord, I pray that your word would do its work as only it can, and that you would transform hearts and minds to trust you more fully and to trust you for the first time. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.